EdChoice's Director of State Research and Policy Analysis, Drew Cat here. We're back with a new EdChoice chat. In this episode, I'm joined by Kristen Blagg, Research Associate at the Urban Institute's Income and Benefits Policy Center, to discuss the recent report she co-authored with Matt Chingos. Who could benefit from school choice? Mapping access to public and private schools. Well, thanks for chatting with me, Kristen. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. So what would you say inspired this research? Uh, well, uh, when uh, with the sort of um, new Republican administration, there was a renewed interest um, in, in the sort of uh, use of a maybe um, some sort of national school choice plan, and um, you know, previously a lot of discussion on school choice has been at the local or state level, um, and we realized that nobody had ever kind of looked at the landscape of choice, you know, from a national policy level. If you implemented some sort of national uh, policy, what would be the effect in different um, different you know cities and states? And so that was kind of what we wanted to do was just get a, a very broad estimate of what types of families would be affected and where. Yeah, that's great. So then, how did you go about designing this study? Uh, well, this is a, a study based on the locations of schools and the locations of families. So um, we used uh, data from the American Community Survey on on families uh, with school aged children, so children aged five to seventeen. Um, sort of assuming that that families were going to be the um, sort of the unit on which this decision is made, um, and then uh, we used uh, information on the location of both public and private schools um, from the private school survey, as well as the Common Core of Data from Department of Education. Um, you know, our our goal was was a, was a pretty simple one. Um, you know, we're not looking at any issues of of capacity of schools. This assumption of if you were plopped somewhere in the U.S. and you were the only one making a choice under these policies, what types of options would you have depending on where you lived? Yeah. And I personally have had quite a few reports using the United States Department of Education's Private School Universe Survey's respondent data. And I realized that the PSS data only includes private schools that actually respond to the federal survey in a given year. So how many of the estimated 30,800 private schools in 2011-12 were you able to include in your analysis? Uh, well, the private school survey has nearly uh, 27,000 observations in it. Um, and for this study, we only look at elementary schools. I don't know the proportion of, el of private elementary schools that we yeah. got off of that study. Um, but, you know... I, the other thing that this looks at is is um you know the the potential you know it if there was some sort of voucher program that was a national voucher program um what sort of take up you might see and i i i you know would be unsure if a private school that didn't respond to a survey might also not participate in a in a national voucher program but um you know, so it's a it's a it's a weakness of our survey that we don't have every you know the entire universe of private schools, but uh, I feel I feel confident that we have a substantial number of them. Yeah, or at least the ones that, as you said, would be potentially interested in participating in such a program. Exactly. 
so what else did you find? Uh, were there any surprises? Uh, I think, uh, you know, again, we don't, um, we're not kind of trying to get a, you know, we're trying to get a very broad sense of, of what the world, you know, looks like today. And so we, we don't look at any of the impacts of, um, putting out any of these programs. I think the, you know, the, the arguments that people make about the the, the impact of places like, of things like charter schools and and um, and private school vouchers do sort of come through. I mean, when you look at uh, families in rural areas, um, lots lots of lower access to um, to things like charter schools and private schools. Um, I was surprised actually by the um, the real coverage of a traditional public school. I mean, we were looking at elementary schools, and obviously the infrastructure for um, public schools have to be there, where every every child in the U.S. should be near an elementary school. Um, the other thing that surprised me was that, um, you know, we, we looked at um, inter-district choice and intra-district choice, and those types of policies about going to other schools within your district and other schools outside of your district are really um, dependent on the size of the district, right? In a place like Florida, for mm-hmm. example, or um, you know, Nevada has one or two very large school districts. Um, you know, the ability to go to a different school district isn't really going to matter that much because you're so far away from any other school outside your district. But um, the ability to, to go to a different school within your school district um, might be a potential option. So we saw a lot of differentiation along those lines within states, just depending on the size of a, of a district within states. Wow, that's very fascinating. So what do you think your findings could mean for the future of school choice? Uh, I, I think our findings show that this is this is a complex uh, issue and that there's a lot of um, sort of local tendencies, that if you tried to enact one choice policy across the U.S., you'd find a lot of people that um, were included, but also a lot of people that are left out. Um, and, and again, you know, all of the caveats of our study apply. We don't look at issues of capacity. So, you know, saying that you're near a school doesn't mean you'll be able to get into that school if everyone else is applying. Um, and in addition, we don't look at uh, potential responses to this, um, to a new policy, such as the opening of new schools. Yeah. So then how could your research potentially be used to improve uh, those K-12 policies? Uh, K-12 policies in general, or? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I I think this does speak to the fact that, um, uh, that, that, you know, a lot of decisions about school choice have been made on the, on the state, state or local level. And, um, you know, that systems have evolved around there. I, I don't think that we... I don't think we can say too much from the study about um, what should be done on a federal level in regard to school choice, mm-hmm. but we do kind of present some, just a, some basic breakdowns of who would benefit and, and who wouldn't in regards to um, families in poverty versus families not in poverty, and then families in rural areas versus non-rural areas or urban areas. Yeah, and as they say, information is power. So have you experienced any criticism of this report? Uh, no, um, 
I think that uh, you know, if you were if you were to criticize it, you'd, you'd definitely point to the fact that we just do a very broad sweep. Um, you know, we also look at as the crow flies distance, and uh, you know, we all know that ten ten miles in a place like Washington D.C. or New York City is very different than ten miles in Wyoming or Iowa. Um, and so I think that those would be would be valid criticisms of our approach. You know, we really are just trying to do a very broad sweep to look at, um, you know, in a, in a level that I don't think has been done before in terms of granularity of understanding who who are near different types of schools. Yeah, it's very potentially seminal research. So, is speaking of which, is there any other research you think could be done following this report? Um, well, as I mentioned, if we do crow flies distance, it would be great um, for someone to look at um, uh, actual driving distance. Um, that would probably be a, a, a better way to, to really hone in on, on this, these types of, of differences, particularly between um, families in rural areas and urban areas. Um, the other thing is we, we do this for elementary schools because we, we think proximity, um, particularly for young children, is very important. Um, mm. Looking at this for middle schools or, or high schools um, would probably be valuable. In addition, particularly for high schools, it might be useful to look at um, things like resources within high schools. You know, um, not just uh, you know how how choice might enable the ability to access a special program, for example. Yeah. Uh, so I saw that you were recently part of a bellwether panel. Um, looking at transportation and education, how what was what were your experiences with that? Uh, yeah, so I was part of a panel. Uh, Bellwether put out an absolutely terrific um, study of um, school student transportation, um, looking at um, the different types of school buses, the um, efficiency of school buses, the um, the different ways the different school districts really have have designed their student transportation system, and I was on a terrific panel of practitioners, um, uh, folks from Boston Public Schools who manage transportation, um, uh, from Florida, and then also from a rural charter school, uh, Idaho. Uh, so it was a great panel to be on. Um, our our study and our focus um, has been on the intersection of student transportation and school choice in five cities. So um, we've, we've created, a, we've done an um, introductory brief highlighting the differences in the transportation policies between these cities. The cities are uh, Denver, Detroit, uh, New Orleans, New York, and uh, here in Washington, D.C. So we've looked at the, the different ways that every city has evolved to sort of uh, manage or navigate student transportation to different schools, whether it's to your neighborhood school, a non-neighborhood school, a charter school, or even in some cases to private schools. Yeah, and it's a fascinating intersection of two very key policy areas, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And what we find is that, um, you know, sort of very similar to uh, our study looking nationally at um, the percentage of families that have different access options, um, that th this has uh, evolved at a very local level. Uh, so the, the policies are incredibly different in terms of, um, you know, who, who gets transportation um, to what schools, um, whether it's by age or um, by the type of school attending. Um, it, you know, 
and in even the mode of transportation, whether it's a uh, yellow school bus or um, a public transportation uh, voucher of some kind. It's it's a, it's really interesting to dig into the nitty gritty, and I think surprising for a lot of people to see that. Um, you know, the way they do it in the city that they grew up in is not the same everywhere else. Yeah. So, Kristen, what would you say is next for you? Uh, well, we're continuing to work on the, uh, transportation and school choice. Um, so we'll be publishing some of that work towards the end of the year. Um, and in addition, I have uh, a few different projects looking at um, location in, in higher ed as well. We did a paper um uh, looking at um, available availability of different programs um, for different individuals in Virginia, for example. So I have a full slate of work ahead of me, and um, always interesting to look at this, um, this idea of geographic variation in, in education policy. Yeah, that, that all sounds like very fascinating work. No, well, I think so. I don't know if many other folks do. Uh, well, you are talking to a fellow researcher. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kristen. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. And there you have it. Until our next chat, visit us at www.edchoice.org blog to read more commentary on school choice research and policy. For all of us at EdChoice, I'm Drew Cat. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.